everyone. Welcome to another episode of Picture Blurfect with me, your host, Naomi Harlenbachus Bulkerson. If this is your first time listening, welcome. I am so excited to have you. I hope you tune in. I hope you hit that subscribe button and I hope you spread the word on this wonderful podcast. I am so excited to bring to you today another guest. Um, Dr. Alex Timko joins us this week. Uh, she is from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She is a psychologist in the Eating Disorder Assessment and Treatment Program over there at CHOP or Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She also has a lot of other titles, and we'll get to that <laughs> in the interview. But um, we kind of joke about how long that is because it's certainly a mouthful. But her research is so, so fascinating. She does a lot of work in anorexia, and most of our conversation focuses on how orthorexia is maybe not categorized correctly. Um, and and her research and her opinion on that, which was actually really fascinating, it was something that really challenged me to look at how we categorize weight and different disorders in in a whole new light. Because I think we are so quick, and I talk about this with her, we're so quick to put a label on things and, oh, that one's a little different than this one, so make it a whole new disease. And maybe, maybe not so. Maybe things just evolve differently with the times and, and the advent of of new new things that come across our way like like social media has really kind of changed the way we see and treat patients with eating disorders so i really appreciated her expertise on this topic she's just so so well versed in this area and she knows everything there is to know about anorexia and that was just really fascinating to me so i wholeheartedly respect her and and all of the work that she's doing um, she also, we talked towards the end about acceptance therapy, which is a form of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And I really appreciated that conversation too, um, learning how to go about, you know, those thoughts that come across that we all deal with when it comes to an eating disorder or body image, body dissatisfaction, how we just go about our day, accept those thoughts and move on without letting it derail our progress. So without further ado, I'm going to stop talking now um, and get right back to our conversation with Dr. Alex Timko. here with Dr. Alex Timko on the next episode of Picture Blurfect. I'm so excited to chat with you. Welcome to Picture Blurfect. Thank you so much for having me. I've been excited for this conversation. Yay. Um, okay, so we'll start off really, really easy. Before we get started, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself, like your, your research interests, where you're currently located, your background, uh, all that stuff. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, so I'm a clinician and I'm also a researcher. And currently I am an assistant professor of psychology in psychiatry at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also director of psychiatric and behavioral health research in the eating disorder assessment and treatment program in the Department of Child um, and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Finally, <laughs> I am the um, faculty lead for the Adolescent Health and Wellbeing Portfolio in Policy Lab, which is a center of emphasis in the Research Institute here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So That's it's a mouthful. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have like a post-it next to you every time? Like you have to say it all? <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I should. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, you got it all. That's amazing. That's that's fantastic. And what are some of the things that your lab focuses on in, in research? 
Right. So in the Eating Disorder and Research Program, my lab focuses um, on a couple of things. So my, we have both a, a treatment research program where we try to develop or refine um, treatments or augment existing treatments, come up with different ways of delivering treatments. And then there is also a transitional piece where I'm really interested in some of the underlying neurobiology or maintenance factors of eating disorders, particularly anorexia. Um, and then really ultimately trying to see if we can identify some sort of risk factor or biomarker for a more chronic course or risk for more chronic course of illness. With the idea being that if we can figure out early on who's likely to not benefit from the current treatments we have or who's more likely to have a longer course of illness, we can develop treatments and target that group sooner rather than later with the ultimate goal of making sure that eating disorders remain disorders of childhood and adolescence. So I don't know that we can fully prevent eating disorders from ever developing, but I think there can be a time in the future where we can prevent them from becoming adult disorders. Mm -hmm. And so if we can stop teenagers from turning into adults with eating disorders, that would be the most wonderful thing in the world. So that's the kind of thing that we try to focus on in my lab. That's amazing. Early intervention is everything. And if we have a biomarker or something to signal that entire process, it's just critical. That's well, that yep. sounds like it really exciting work and uh, ambitious work that, that you're doing, but so necessary. So taking a step back, how did you get started in researching eating disorders? Um, so it's it's interesting. Um, this is not where I thought I would be way back in the beginning, I actually started my interest um, in college when um, I honestly, I realized that none of my friends and I had eating disorders um, and we should have had eating disorders based on what my understanding was right from the psych tech books, the psych tech books, textbooks and the media and magazines and everything you know, it just seemed like we should have based on the fact that we weren't always very happy with our bodies. Sometimes our eating habits would be a little crazy. And so I didn't understand why we didn't have them. And I became really interested in that phenomenon and tried to figure out what it was I was thinking about. And I was led to this concept of restrained eating, which is this idea that some people have very strict dietary rules and really try to limit their intake because of those rules. But once those rules are broken, they experience what's called the what the hell effect. So it's basically like, what the hell? I already ate something I wasn't supposed to eat. I'm just going to keep on eating. And so it's this restrained eating and subsequent disinhibited eating that I was really interested in and that I felt that that really kind of described a lot of what I saw in my friends in college. And so I did a little bit of research on that in college. And then when I went to grad school, I went to work with somebody who did research in that area and then rapidly became interested in the link between sort of this restrained or disordered eating and eating disorders. And then the more work I did, the more interested I became in the treatment and development of eating disorders. I really became interested in the role of flexibility in eating disorders. And so as I continued my clinical training, I wanted to get more and more experience in that area. And then just as time went on, my research and clinical interests really came together. And I found myself really focused on anorexia nervosa and trying to develop better treatments for the disorder. 
I love when that happens when research and clinical stuff come together and and that just makes it so so much more impactful when they and we see a lot in research that the two areas like basic scientists and translational research don't really talk to each other and there's that mm-hmm. gap in communication. So I love that you tackle both and it's it's so funny how our experiences really shape who we are and like like you experienced in college. That's that's amazing. So one thing that I want to dig into is your lab published a really interesting paper that took a closer look at orthorexia, orthorexia nervosa. And you argue that orthorexia is not a new psychiatric disorder, but rather a new cultural manifestation of anorexia nervosa. So let's walk the listeners through like the impetus for this paper, the importance of that topic and your arguments for that position. So let's start first by what exactly is orthorexia nervosa? So orthorexia nervosa is a term that is defined a little bit differently by a lot of different people. Um, But in general, it's this idea that individuals have this hyper-focus on food quality, eating really healthy foods, um, maybe pure foods or clean foods, um, focused on the impact that food can have on health. Oftentimes, it has very rigid rules about what is healthy or unhealthy or good or bad. Somebody who eats that way can potentially become very nutritionally imbalanced or enter into a state of caloric deficit. Um, There can often be guilt around eating. So if something was consumed that was overly processed or wasn't organic or wasn't clean, there could be feelings of guilt after eating something that's believed to be unhealthy, or there could be emotional distress associated with eating these things that are perceived as being unhealthy. Um, And the idea behind orthorexia Um, is that it is, in theory, different from other eating disorders, in particular anorexia nervosa, because there isn't this focus on appearance. There isn't this focus on wanting to obtain um, a smaller frame. So there's no focus on weight gain. There's no shape or weight disturbance. And there's no fear of gaining weight um, is the hypothesis and how they're different from anorexia or how it's different from anorexia. Um, and so I'll, I'll be honest, the the impetus from this paper really came more from my clinical work than my research work. Okay. This isn't something that we tackle regularly in my lab from a research perspective. But clinically, what I was seeing is um, a lot of families coming in for treatment and saying that, you know, this really isn't an eating disorder. This is just orthorexia. Or we're not worried about this being anorexia. It's not anorexia. It's just orthorexia. Or a therapist told us not to worry because it's just orthorexia. Or my pediatrician said it sounded like it's just orthorexia. And it was alarming for me clinically. And occasionally, sure, like you'll hear this, but it was at that point in time before we started thinking about this paper, it just felt like I was hearing this repeatedly. And clinically, at that point in time, I was working in the hospital in our inpatient medical stabilization unit. So this is a place where teenagers who are in a state of medical instability due to malnutrition come, they're hospitalized, and we medically stabilize them. So it's not a psychiatric inpatient stay. It really is truly medical. And one of my roles as a consultation liaison psychologist is to come in and do a formal evaluation and help to determine whether or not an eating disorder is present. And I was getting this, you know, what felt to be frequent reassurance that this isn't an eating disorder, this is just orthorexia. Or I'm not worried about, you know, 
I'm not concerned about my weight. I'm not concerned about getting weight. I just want to be healthy. It's all about being healthy. I want to make sure that I'm healthy. Um, and then not recognizing that maybe what you were doing wasn't healthy because you're here in the hospital with us. Um, and really, the more I would talk to kids and the more I would talk to families, like this was anorexia. This wasn't orthorexia. This really, truly is anorexia. And if you take out the reasons why somebody was eating less food or particular types of food and you just objectively describe the behavior so if you objectively talk about somebody who has reduced their caloric intake has reduced the variety of their foods focuses in on only a couple of food groups has ruled out highly processed food has ruled out foods high in fat high in carbohydrate gets really upset when they have to eat something outside of those foods has these very really rigid ideas around food would get very upset if something else had to come onto the plate you know if they were out with friends and there was no option to eat anything else just wouldn't eat something um there would be increased inflexibility increased anxiety all of the medical complications i mean that sounds a lot like anorexia to me right so once you took out the reasons why somebody entered into a state of caloric deficit it's exactly the same thing when we dig into the diagnostic criteria, where I think it gets really tricky and where I think a lot of people get held up on is um, an overly literal interpretation of the DSM-5. So with the DSM-5, um, there was an acknowledgement of what is known as non-fat phobic anorexia. So what we see in other countries and other cultures is this disorder that looks exactly like anorexia, but it's missing the sphere of fatness. And so in acknowledgement of the fact that we observe this manifestation of anorexia in other cultures, the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 changed a little bit. So if you look at the, the diagnostic criteria, you don't have to endorse body disturbance or fear of weight gain. You can engage in behavior to avoid weight gain. So if you're engaging in behavior to avoid weight gain, but telling me you're totally fine gaining weight and you don't have any problem with those things, but everything you're doing is avoiding weight gain, that's sufficient to meet that criteria. And then another place where it's changed is that for some people really not recognizing how sick they are. So this phenomenon known as anosognosia, which I never can quite pronounce correctly, but it's this phenomenon where people just can't recognize how sick they are. And you see this in a number of disorders, but we also see it more frequently in anorexia. So if somebody is not recognizing how sick they are, then they can meet that criteria for anorexia. So once you have those two things in there, you don't have to have somebody who has body disturbance or has a lot of shape or weight concerns to meet diagnostic criteria for anorexia. So there's no reason why if I'm saying I've lost all this weight, I'm really sick because I'm in the hospital, but I actually don't think there's any problem with what I'm doing because I'm trying to be healthy and I want to be healthy and I'm just really afraid of being unhealthy. And if you make me eat those foods, I'm going to be unhealthy. I'm just doing you know, what my doctor told me or what I learned in school or just really wanting to make sure that I eat healthy so I can be healthy. And if that's preventing you from eating a wide variety of food flexibly, from nourishing your body in different situations where different foods are available and even gaining weight, how is that not anorexia? And that was really the question that I was struggling with. And my concern was that there was this minimization from 
parents at times, from kids certainly, and honestly, sometimes from other providers, depending on where they came from, where it really is the language I would hear was it's just orthorexia. That's like, but this is just serious enough that this adolescent is now hospitalized for medical stabilization. So there's nothing just about this, right? This is a very serious illness. Yeah. But it was often dismissed as not being that serious because it wasn't really an eating disorder. She was just trying to be healthy or he was just trying to be healthy. Um, and so we didn't need to worry about it as much. And so I think sometimes the idea that it was orthorexia would take away from the urgency and the severity of the fact that this is an eating disorder with a fairly high mortality rate. And I think that it also can sometimes delay treatment, right? Because if something's not being identified as anorexia, but rather orthorexia, then you don't necessarily, we don't have any treatments for orthorexia, but we do have effective treatments for anorexia, but that treatment might not be sought out because it's not anorexia, it's not an eating disorder, it's orthorexia. And so clinically, this was a problem for me. Um, and so when we sat down and we're really thinking about it, I was like, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I just need to really dig in and write a paper about this and just write yeah. a piece out of it. Maybe we really need to think about the diagnostic criteria for anorexia. Because if you look at them historically over time, which we, we lay out in the paper from DSM-1 to DSM-5, like shape and weight concerns and body disturbance didn't show up until like the DSM three, right? It didn't show up until the 20th century. Right. And really, if you if you take out that reason why objectively the behaviors, the medical complications, everything has been pretty much the same for the past few hundred years. It's just the reasons why somebody is engaging in that. So from my perspective, I really was thinking that, you know. We know that anorexia is not a culture-bound syndrome. I think that's been pretty well established. But the reasons why we try to explain this fairly scary behavior could be very culture-bound, either culture-bound from you know the geographic location in the world or culture-bound in terms of the period of time that we're in. And so as we've become so much more aware of the dangers of social media and the portrayal of body image, it makes sense, right? People are more sensitized to that. We're more aware of it. But healthy eating and healthy food and clean eating and organic eating and everything, that's a really easy place for an eating disorder to grow, right? Exactly. So it makes sense that you can put those reasons on the same behavior. So I think the reasons that why we attribute a certain behavior happens, I think that's changed over time, but the actual disorder really hasn't. And so that's why I would argue that orthorexia is really just this new cultural manifestation and understanding as to why somebody may restrict, because as human beings, we like to understand why there has to be a reason why. And that's just one. And so that was really the impetus from the paper. It came very much from my clinical side of my life. I just can't get over people saying, oh, it's just this, you know, they're here in the hospital having these health complications, but it's just this. Don't worry about it. It's not an eating disorder. It's just orthorexia. She's just trying to be healthy. It went a little too far. Wow. Yeah. It's just, it's people's lives at stake. And that's, and, and the other thing I heard as you were talking is that we've just, I think we do get caught up in always having to have a, a strict label for things and mm-hmm. we're just not open-minded about evolving with the times and with the advent of social media and technology and need to make sure that our diagnostic criteria and how we view eating disorders evolves with that and aligns with all of those things. 
Um, so it does make a, make a lot of sense to me. And aren't the two, is treatment the same for both? Like, I mean, that's what I would argue because I think orthorexia is just anorexia, you know, yeah. just it's anorexia. And so, I, yeah, absolutely. If you have somebody who is really restricting their intake to the point where it is, you know, really interfering with their life, it's becoming problematic, it's impacting their nutritional status, impacting all these other things. The way we treat it is behaviorally. We increase calories, we increase caloric variety, we challenge rigid rules, we foster flexible eating, you know, of different varieties in different situations. You know, if somebody prefers organic food, that's their prerogative. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Some people have that preference totally, whatever. But if it gets to the point where that is all you will eat to the point of not eating, if that's not available um, and there are very rigid rules about it and you become very upset if you can't have that, then that becomes concerning, right? Then we're starting to talk about the level of a disorder. And then again, I really don't see how that's any different than anorexia. And not everything is is clear cut, which I think is is what as scientists and researchers, they really want something that's clear cut. The evidence, the data has to line up this way. Um, but it's not always easy with psychiatric diseases like mm -hmm. that. And and it's very different from like, let's say, bulimia, where there is a very clear difference where they are binging and purging that you don't find in anorexia. So you can categorize that differently. But I well, guess and no. I would actually say, so you can have a binge purge subtype in anorexia, right? So you oh, have somebody yeah, with true. a really low body weight who engages in binging or purging behavior. And we also now have this diagnosis of atypical anorexia, right. which we, there's, there's a lot of problems with that particular diagnosis. I think it's still anorexia, right? But atypical anorexia is somebody who meets all of the diagnostic criteria for anorexia, but their weight is in the normal range. So now you have somebody who meets all the diagnostic criteria, their weight's in the normal range. Now, what if they start to binge or purge? Why is that bulimia and not atypical anorexia yeah. binge purge type? No, we don't have an atypical anorexia binge purge type, but why wouldn't it be? Right? Really? So if you have somebody who's gone from a higher weight and has lost, let's say they've lost like 60, 65, 70 pounds, maybe now they're in the so-called normal weight range, but they're really restricting their intake. They have a lot of rigid rules around food. They're medically yeah. compromised. They're malnourished. Their quality of life is impaired. Clearly, they meet all the criteria for anorexia. Now, if that person starts to binge or purge, why are they all of a sudden diagnostically classified as having bulimia? Why can't that be a binge purge subtype of anorexia that just yeah. happens to be somebody in a normal weight range, so-called normal weight range? It's the whole way we view and categorize eating disorders need to be reevaluated re in total? I, I think it might need to be. I, I think we need to be a lot more thoughtful about it. Yeah, I know you can kind of say, do we need to just really go more broad and look at behaviors or do we need to go more fine-grained and to break it into all these like smaller categories I think if we look at the behaviors and the behaviors all tend to hang together then yeah. that's what we focus on because clinically that's what I'm going to target right, right. I'm going to target those behaviors mm -hmm. um so for me honestly in some ways the diagnosis doesn't even really matter I look at what are the behaviors and what do we need to target if somebody's binging or purging, we need to reduce the frequency of that. If somebody's restricting, we need to get them nourished. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what we call it. We still have to help them get healthy. Yeah, exactly. That's, it's such a, it's such a very refreshing way to look at things actually. So 
Um, what sort of feedback have you received? Like once you published the paper and it came out, what kind of feedback did you receive from colleagues or from, from others? Did you get a lot of pushback? So at the time, I think we got a little bit. Um, there was definitely, I think, a mixed reaction. So my this is a very gross generalization, right? So I'm, I'm going to make a very broad generalization and there's going to be exceptions to what I'm about to say. But I say, generally speaking, my clinical colleagues were like, yes, thank you. This is so true. Thank you for finally putting into words everything that we see clinically. And my colleagues who are more research oriented were like, and there's all these other diagnostic criteria. We need to research this. We need to understand how this is similar, how this is different. You know, you're overgeneralizing. This is ON is or orthorexia nervosa is its own thing. And so it seemed to kind of fall into these two camps that were characterized by more clinical versus more research. Again, very broad generalization. Um, but that was more or less my experience that my Clinician colleagues agreed with me, and my my more research oriented colleagues were slightly more skeptical. Interesting. That's so. So, what next? Like from this paper, like are you following on with it with follow up studies, or is it has it shaped like the trajectory of your lab, or is it kind of like a project you wanted to finish and and then move on? I think it was a little bit more of the latter. I, again, from my perspective, it's anorexia nervosa. So I'm continuing that line of research right. because we're treating these kids. And, um, you know, if an adolescent comes in and identifies, I just wanted to be healthy as the reason why they started to reduce their intake and ended up losing weight. I'm, I'm still going to treat them as if they have anorexia because I actually believe they do have anorexia. So in that way, it hasn't changed anything. Um, I guess one piece that came out of this is one of the things that we did is um, we did a retrospective chart review. So I don't have um, students the way my colleagues who are embedded in psychology departments have, right? Because I'm in a medical school. So I have a lot of individuals from local colleges or universities or from outside who will come and work with me as a research assistant or will come and spend a summer with me. And one of them was a young woman, uh, Sophie Haas, came and spent actually two summers with us working on this project because she was really fascinated by this idea. So um, we did a retrospective chart review, which is just about done, where she looked at the reasons why parents and adolescents identified the eating disorder starting. So again, I come at this much more from an agnostic perspective. I think all eating disorders are very multifactorial. We can't say with any degree of precision why any particular eating disorder started. So this is really what teenagers and parents identified as why or how or when the eating disorder started. And so she cataloged all the different reasons that families gave us. And so we have this really nice paper that's coming together that walks through all of the different reasons why the eating disorder started. Shape and weight concerns is like the number one, the vast majority. But about 41% of over a thousand kids identified a non-shape or weight related reason. Wow. And reason number four was to be healthy or to eat healthy. That was like the fourth most popular reason. Um, so there were a whole variety of reasons why. Um, so we are um, finishing up that work. Sophie presented preliminary data from that at the Eastern Psychological Association, I think, last year. And so we're wrapping up that project and hopefully we'll be getting it ready for publication in the upcoming months. Um, and I would say that that particular project stemmed directly from this paper, like really is wanting to quantify what are the reasons why and what's the variety of reasons why families say an eating disorder starts. 
Um, but other than that, there's not a particular line of research moving forward focused on orthorexia, no. It really, again, came from my clinical experience and at the clinician and me needing to put this out there. That's amazing, though. I love I love that you formed a new partnership, too, with, with this student and gained another person in the lab to really look at this even further. And that's going to be a really interesting paper. I can't wait to, to read that. Um, okay, so going a little further back, one of your other publications examined sex differences in adolescent anorexia and bulimia. So this review article went a little bit deeper than prior studies. Um, so rather than only exploring clinical differences, you tried to identify factors that influence influence the development and maintenance of eating disorders, things like genetics, hormones, and, and neural circuitry. So what did you find when you dug into all of that? Because that was probably a lot of work. <laughs> it was. So that was a project that I did um, a number of years ago. I was a building interdisciplinary research careers in women's health scholar. It's called a Birch Scholar. And so I focused on sex differences and understanding sex as a biological variable in eating disorders in particular. Yeah. And um, if you look back on my body of work, I've always included males in my research. There have been times where we've had male data that's been a very small sample size. So we haven't always been able to publish it because sometimes we'll get feedback, just cut the males because there's not enough of a sample size, but we've always included males. Um, and so I really wanted to dig in you know, beyond sort of those classic presentations. And I think we actually called that article be up beyond like the signs and symptoms of the disorder, right? Um, because the work that's done really trying to understand the presentation of eating disorders in men, we really get a very similar picture. There are some differences, but there's more similarities than differences. The measures we use are not very good for men. They're very female-centric, developed and normed on and, and females. And so how sensitive they are to males is a question. But, you know, more and more we're looking towards understanding the neurobiology and, and what are the underlying mechanisms of an eating disorder. And so from my perspective, um, we really need to think about males in that space as well, in particular because I focus on children and adolescents. And so adolescence is this incredible period of development. Um, the brain just goes through massive growth spurts. We see all kinds of changes happening and there are sex differences in normal pubertal development. So it makes sense that because there's these just straight up sex differences in normal pubertal development, that if you have a disorder that starts during puberty and because of malnutrition really interrupts the normal development of puberty, that there are likely sex differences at that neurobiological level as well. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of see like, what is the state of the literature on this? Um, and the upshot is, is that there's not a lot of data, right? So I kind of went to the areas that pop the most in the literature. So genetics, um, the role of sex hormones, in particular estrogen, testosterone, but more work has been done on estrogen, um, reward circuitry, neurocognition. And the vast majority of those studies do not include any male participants or very, very few and so few that we really can't make any kind of conclusions or make any kind of assumptions for how they may be different um, at these underlying levels. And it's really important. So if we think just about neurocognition, which is where some of my more recent research is focused, executive functioning develops during adolescence and it develops at different rates in girls and boys and it reaches adult levels a little bit earlier in girls than it does in boys yeah. so when the disorder starts and and how malnutrition can interrupt that process could look different in girls or boys 
right? Um, the way that estrogen or testosterone can play a role in the brain development is going to be different depending on when the boys versus girls develop the eating disorder. And we just don't know what that looks like. And it's harder to get a larger sample of males to really understand those differences because we just don't see them in the research that often. And that doesn't mean that they don't have eating disorders, right? They're much more common in boys than I think we've thought about historically. I know that the classic number is like 10 females to every one male. I think more accurate is probably more like three to one. And there's some research that says like in the younger kids in particular, it could be much closer to one to one. So it's really common in boys. They present a little bit different. So in our clinical samples, boys tend to come from a higher weight. And so when they're hospitalized, for example, for medical stabilization, they might be closer to that 50th percentile um, median BMI, right? So they're going to look more like an atypical anorexia style presentation. Um, So if you're doing research studies where you're looking for a sample of teenagers with anorexia, but you want them to be very low weight, you're less likely to have boys enter into that. Like there's definitely boys who are sick, but if the boys are at the 50th percentile or 95% of the 50th percentile, they're not that low, low, low weight, at least not in high numbers, right? So we still get boys who are that sick, but they're not necessarily going to be at that same low number as some of the girls are going to be. So they're not necessarily going to enter into the studies if there's a strict weight criterion for entrance, right? We also know that boys don't show up for treatment quite as frequently as girls. There's a little bit more stigma associated with having an eating disorder when you're a boy. So there's a lot of factors at play. But in general, what that um, review paper said is, you know, here's what we know, and we don't have data about this in boys. And it could look different in boys for all of these normal developmental reasons, we just don't know what it looks like. And we actually really need to start including boys in these studies, because if we truly, truly want to understand the disorder, not only do we have to look at the disorder close to the time of onset, but we need to look at it in everybody who develops the disorder, not just a portion of the population who developed the disorder. Exactly. And I understand maybe limiting a a study to a certain, you know, group of individuals. So like cutting it off at a certain BMI or whatever, but is that really the best way to be inclusive of everybody? Are there other, like other lines to be crossed, like maybe the same hormonal level or something to, to make sure you include people? Yeah, I think it's really tricky. Um, And, and part of the thing that makes it tricky is that we don't understand how malnutrition impacts the brain in and of itself, like separate from eating disorders. So when I started to go more down this path in my research, um, I literally, I, I, you know, I Googled and I was doing lit searches and I was trying to find the impact of malnutrition on the adolescent developing brain for dummies article, right? That's the (laughs) one I I wanted to find that similar article that would summarize for me, like what happened to the developing adolescent brain when it was malnourished, but no one, no eating disorder, just check out malnourishment. (laughs) And it doesn't exist. Instead, I found this wonderful article. um, I think it's from 2017 and the author's name is Galler, I believe. Um, and it is, you know, the impact of inflammation and malnutrition on adolescent brain development in low resource settings. And so I found that I was like, Eureka, jackpot, this is fabulous. And it is a great article. It is one of my favorite articles. But it is, it is essentially, here's everything we don't know. And here's oh, why gosh. we know these things, because it's so important. Um, and so for me, it's really tough because we 
we can't really parse out that interaction between malnutrition and illness state yeah. in anorexia. And so we do need to understand the impact of malnutrition on the brain and, and what that looks like at different weights or different hormone levels in order to parse out what's malnutrition, what's illness. You know, it's tough. So I think that there's probably a better way. I just don't know what that way is right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's it's just one of the yeah. challenging parts of studying this. It's it's so hard. So what was the, probably the most surprising finding when you were digging through all this data? And aside from there just not being any data available for, for males, what was the most surprising thing? I, I don't honestly know that there was a surprising thing for me. I think it was more sad that my hypothesis that there wouldn't be a lot of data was actually really worn out. If anything, that's really what it was. Um, and sort of highlighting even more so why it's important that we include all genders and that we look at girls and boys and we look at those biological sex differences, again, because of that developmental perspective. So I think it just solidified for me the importance of doing that. And it made me a little sad that we just don't have the information. It's totally fair. I still wonder because I developed anorexia was actually diagnosed when I was like 15, but it started when I was 12. Mm -hmm. So I really want to know all those years of malnutrition, what happened to my brain and, you know, I turned out okay, but I wonder, you know, did I, did something happen that like I could have maybe avoided because I didn't get those proper nutrients. So it's, it's amazing what, what we still don't know. And I'm just so glad you're trying to tackle the issue. Um, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Well, I was just going to say exactly. And I mean, I still have that question, like what happens and, and is yeah. there, you know, a critical period of, you know, development of the disorder or a critical length of time? And the only way we can really answer that is to have longitudinal studies of kids, you know, while they're getting treatment, really looking at what happens when you get better, when you don't get better, when it takes a really long time to get better, taking into account the length of the illness and not just the length of the illness, like you said, from when you were diagnosed, but rather when can you go back and identify that it started to happen, right? So you can go back to the growth charts and kind of see when did kids start to fall off their growth charts? When were things first noticed? And that gives you an indication that there's this diagnostic gap between when the illness actually starts and when it's actually diagnosed. Yeah. Um, and really looking at that and then over time, what happens? My guess is, is that there is still, I mean, adolescents, their brains are developing and we know the brain is just incredible and there's a lot of neuroplasticity. So I think if we can get kids back on track as quickly as possible, the brain can yeah. catch up and kind of recover. Um, but we don't know if there was a, a critical window for that or not. Yeah, right. And exactly. we just don't know. And we don't know whether or not brain development is paused and then catches back right. up. We don't know if it is permanently altered. We don't know if there is a point in time where it's like paused. And then after a certain amount of time, it becomes permanently altered. Exactly. We don't have answers to those questions. And I think those are really important questions to begin to answer because I think those will actually provide us with information about how to better treat these disorders too. Right. right? So exactly. I think that's important information to have. Exactly. Yeah. I just, I wish that, I wish that was known now. And I also, back when I was going through it, like 
the changes I was going through, like maybe I could have grown a few inches taller, like if I, mm-hmm. if I was eating correctly. Um, so yeah. all of those things matter. So shifting gears a little bit. So as a researcher and licensed psychologist, you have expertise in what's called acceptance and commitment therapy. So can you explain yeah. what type of therapy that is? Like, how is it different from other forms that you might normally hear about? So um, acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, it is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, It belongs to what is frequently called sort of the third wave of behavioral therapies. And it incorporates a lot of acceptance and mindfulness-based approaches. So it would sort of belong to the same group as like DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, for example. Um, And with ACT, the idea is is that... um, Human suffering is natural and normal. It's going to happen. And that's not necessarily a problem. Um, How we react to it or maybe how we attempt to control it, that's what can become problematic. Um, And with ACT, it really tries to foster this idea of what's called psychological flexibility. And the idea is, is that at any particular moment in time, can I experience thoughts or feelings then maybe I might want to have more or less. And in that moment, if I'm experiencing thoughts and feelings that are maybe undesirable or things I don't want to experience, can I still make a decision to engage in behavior that's really important to me and will help move me towards those important things in life while still potentially experiencing thoughts and feelings that I'm not necessarily thrilled about having, right? So the idea is, is that all of our attempts to control those thoughts and feelings actually kind of make them worse. So if I'm sad, the more I try not to be sad, all I'm doing is becoming sadder because I'm sad about the fact that I'm sad. And now I'm getting mad about the fact that the things that I'm doing to try to make myself not sad aren't helping (laughs) and it can kind of spiral out of control. So instead, ACT fosters an awareness of thoughts, feelings, and sensations as just that, no more, no less. It's just a thought. Um, So for eating disorders, you know, I'm a banana, I am fat. They're both just thoughts with words, right? right? And when I talk to kids, I'll I'll talk about, you know, grade school math class when you learn absolute values of numbers where you put those yeah. little brackets around a number and it's not like a negative three or a positive three, it's just a three. Yeah. And that's kind of how I think about it. It's just a thought. It's not a good thought or a bad thought. Oh, so I like teach that. that non-judgmental awareness of thoughts. It's just a thought. And having the thought isn't necessarily a big deal or a problem. It's how I react to it that can become problematic, right? So if I now believe the thought and do a lot of things to try to change the thought or to make the thought go away, then I can get caught up in it. But if I acknowledge I'm having the thought and still get on with my life, then I'm living potentially a really full life. So ACT teaches that non-judgmental awareness of thoughts, the ability to take a step back and observe your thoughts um, helps identify what's really important to you, what's called values. So those things that are really, really important in life. And they're the things that can never be achieved, right? So the example that I use is I'm a, I'm a mother. So it's not like I, you know, being a good mom is a value and I can't say, okay, I went home from school today and my daughter was upset and I helped her work through a problem check mark. I'm a good mom. I'm done. Right. <laughs> That's not how it works. That's like, right. It's not an achievable goal. It's something that you're <laughs> constantly striving towards. And those are those values, these generalized operands that kind of help organize yeah. our over time. And so identifying those and really committing to engage in behavior in line with those values and having that as sort of your guidepost can make it 
worth the pain of having some yeah. of those thoughts and feelings along for the ride. So they're just along for the ride yeah. um, and they can be there and you can still go about your day. So yeah. um, I'll sometimes describe it, you know, to my, to the teenage girls I work with that, you know, like if you have this really cute outfit picked out for tomorrow and you get up in the morning and you're feeling like a little, you have some of those thoughts, like, Ugh, I don't feel quite right in my body today. And you put on your jeans and you have the thought, oh, I'm fat. And you're like, okay. And this is a really cute outfit. And I really wanted to wear it today. Can you leave that outfit on? Still have the thought that maybe you are fat, go downstairs, eat your breakfast to fuel your body for the day, go to school, have your snack, hang out with your friends, go to math class, stress over the math problem, maybe periodically throughout the day, still have that thought pop up go home, have your snack, eat your dinner. Day is good. You know, can that thought still be there every now and then? And, or does your day get like stopped by that thought? And so with ACT, it really is not trying to change the, the frequency of thoughts or the context, contents of thoughts, but just recognizing that they're thoughts. Yeah. And I want to go do this other thing that's really important to me today. Exactly. I'm going to go exactly. do it. Yeah, I'm, I really like that because it, but it is the hardest part to really just get to that point oh. where you're like recognizing, oh, OK, that's there, but move on with life. You know, that's it's so, so hard. hard. Yeah, so hard. And I don't know that it's actually possible. Mm. I think it's very difficult to do that in the throes of malnutrition and in the really yeah, true of illness. And so I think that it's the kind of thing that your brain just has to be a little bit more nourished. Your brain has to be a little bit more healed to be able to manage that being able to recognize that you're having a thought and, and take a step back and make a choice to interact with that thought differently takes a lot of energy right yeah. it, it takes that that there's some skill involved in that so it's not something that can be done i think when you're really underweight or malnourished but certainly as somebody is getting better i think it's an important skill and an important thing that can be learned and i think that act can really be brought to bear i'm in that latter phase of recovery quite yeah. well no, and sure. i think it can be really helpful for parents in all honesty um because particularly with teenagers if you're coming at treatment from a family-based approach it can be really difficult for parents and so sometimes having those acceptance skills can be really important in helping them externalize the eating disorder from their child, but also help get them through those moments when things are really, really hard and keeping that value of having a healthy kid um, really front and center because, you know, anorexia, anorexia is tough. Oh my gosh, it truly is. Um, and I love the absolute values, like in math, um, that description of it. I think that's so important. I've over the years, just because I get frustrated when people, when I try to explain to people the thought process behind it and how sometimes, you know, they're there, sometimes they're not, but it's not so much an on and off switch because they're always kind of there. It's it's more of a light dimmer for me. Sometimes yep. it's on the full volume. blast. Yeah. Yep. And I can get right. So, mm -hmm. and that's how you control your response to it um, rather than the actual thoughts themselves, let them do what they will, but like how high or, or low it is in your brain. Um, mm -hmm. But it's hard. It's a, it's a daily thing and people can get triggered and it can start something. And you, the, the hardest part is like, Oh, I, like you said, I can still go downstairs and eat my breakfast normally and, and continue my normal routine and day. 
So that's, that's, that's wonderful. So one of my last questions for you is what do you find to be the most, and we've talked about a lot of challenges, but what is the most challenging aspect to you in researching eating disorders? What do you find? What's the hardest part? I've heard one, one key theme from most people that Mm -hmm. I've interviewed. Probably the funding, Um, (laughs) but I I think it's actually really so much more complex than that, right? Because yes, you know, eating disorders are funded at a very, very low rate compared. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's, it's like less than a dollar a person. It's, it's really low given how pervasive they are. Right. Um, but it's not just the overall amount of grants that are funded. It's, it's a much more complex picture when we talk about funding. So part of it is how many researchers do we have applying for funding? You know, and, and that goes back to, well, how many places do we have to train researchers to do this kind of work? And, you know, then the other piece in there is also how much funding do you actually get when you get funding, right? So the amount of of dollars that you get for a research grant hasn't changed in a very, very long time. And so what you could do with a budget 15 years ago is very different than what you can do with that exact same budget today, right? So there's a difference there in what you can do with what you're given from the grants. And then again, the number of people who actually do this work and the number of people who are trained to do this work. So I think it's a much bigger issue than just funding. There are so many more faculty members like in PhD programs or in hospitals doing this research than when I first started in the field, which is amazing. And there's still nowhere near enough. You know, oftentimes, if you look at, you know, the faculty in a medical school or a psych department or, you know, a psychiatry, there are, are quite a few people who deal with anxiety, depression, ADHD, how many deal with eating disorders? Zero, one, maybe one. Two. Yeah. You know, and so having a, a, a greater number of people doing this work and submitting high quality grants and getting those grants funded and then having those individuals be in places where they can train the next generation. I think those are all really important things. Um, So the funding is definitely part of it. And then I think there's also pockets where this work is done. I mean, I'm very lucky to be here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I think we can do really amazing work. We have a very robust clinical program. Um, But there are a lot of places in this country and across the world where eating disorders are rampant and there aren't research centers and there aren't people doing this work. And so I think we also miss out on great swaths of the population. And there's a lot of people who have these disorders who aren't paid attention to in research, who need to be paid attention to in research. So I think that's another issue as well that, again, can be tied to training and funding. Yeah, no, I totally. And that's a lot of the things that I deal with in my day job, dealing with policy and and monitoring the the workforce and and things like that and, and what it can mean. Um, for all different kinds of disciplines, especially eating disorders, because that's that's where my mind always goes to is that workforce. Um, and I came from Kentucky, where it was especially hard to find treatment and place. And I know Sherry Levinson's group is really yes. building that yes. up. Thank goodness. But like when I was just 
I think it, when I was diagnosed, I don't think she was there yet or it was just starting. So it was really difficult to find a doctor who didn't dismiss me and just say, mm -hmm. oh, well, maybe she needs another colonoscopy to see what's going on in her digestive tract. And it's things like that that just it makes me makes me sad. But I am hopeful for, for the future. OK, so my last question for you is. What is your advice for someone out there listening? This might be the first time they're tuning in to Picture Blurfect um, and they feel like they want to seek help. They feel like they need to address their situation with an eating disorder, disordered eating, whatever it may be, but they're just too afraid to take that first step. So what's your advice? So I work mostly with children and adolescents, and I think it is a little bit more rare for them to reach out and ask True. for help. I mean, honestly, there are many times where, you know, kids and their parents don't even know that anything is wrong, right? And so it can, it can come as a shock that this is a problem. But I also hear from some teenagers that they were beginning to suspect that maybe there was an issue or maybe they thought they had an eating disorder. And sometimes they would reach out and tell somebody. And if they don't get the response that they're looking for to tell somebody else and to keep telling somebody until somebody listens, um, because I think particularly for adolescents who don't fit the stereotype of what somebody with anorexia looks like, their concerns may not be listened to initially. So if you right. feel this is something that you're struggling with, tell somebody, tell somebody until they listen. And if one person's not listening, tell more people. Um, and then I think mostly for parents, it's also, you know, don't be afraid to voice concerns that you have to your pediatrician. And if your pediatrician's not taking you seriously, find another one. Um, don't hesitate to ask questions or to touch base with the school and find out, like, is my child actually eating lunch? Um, you know, if you're concerned, if your spidey senses are tingling, then act on them. Yeah, um, that's just such great advice. I, I love that. And I love everything that you do and everything we talked about today. I've learned so much. You really challenge the way, like the the normal way of thinking, I think, about, you know, eating disorders. It's not a clear cut box all the time that you can just put in there and, and understand it. It's a very difficult and complex issue. And I'm just so glad you're trying to tackle it. And I know you're incredibly busy. So all of the time that you gave us today, thank you so, so much. Um, I just can't thank you enough and can't wait to see what happens next for you. Oh, thank you. And it is my pleasure. I, I love talking about this stuff. And if we can raise awareness about the seriousness and severity of eating disorders and, and have everybody recognize that these are important illnesses that that need treatment and need attention and anything that we can do to reduce the stigma associated yes. with them is just so important. So thank you so much for doing this and, and thank you for inviting me. That about wraps everything up for this week, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. And again, thank you so, so much to Dr. Alex Timko for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge. I just, I still think about our conversation and I hope um, that you, and I know that you made an impression on so many other listeners. So thank you again, everyone. Please spread the word about her work, about this episode. I will include all of the references that we mentioned in the podcast, um, in our interview in the episode description. So you can go ahead and click if you want to read more information, more about her research and really just check out all of the great work that she's doing. She's got a lot of exciting things going on. So 
I don't have much else to say, everyone. I think we about said it all this week. Um, just your daily reminder, um, your weekly reminder, rather, that whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through in this moment, whether it's you're feeling great or whether you're just kind of down and meh about about life and about how you're feeling about your body, and it's okay. And you still deserve to eat, and you need to eat, and you need that energy. You need that to to keep running. And I'm so proud of you and for listening and for for making it through today and and wherever you are. And I hope that you remember that you know your your bodies are not static. I think that's something I'm really learning and and figuring out myself too especially with my infertility stuff that you know your your body's not meant to stay the same all the time you know but how it was five years ago doesn't mean needs to be now like our bodies change and they're supposed to and they adapt to to age and and the the times around us and i it's actually a beautiful thing that i'm trying to embrace but forcing myself to really like stay the same this rigidness that my eating disorder wants me to always revert to that's what i have to try and constantly remind myself no like it's okay to kind of live a little (laughs) right and it's it's okay to change so i hope that you take that with you that's something that's kind of personally on my heart and and mind right now um whatever else that you're going through know that your feelings are valid and it's, it's tough. It's not easy. Every day is going to be different. Um, it's not going to be a, a straight line like we always say. So keep going, uh, whatever you're going through. And those thoughts, it's okay to have them sometimes, but to not let it overtake you, right? That's that's the key part. And we talked about that a lot with Dr. Timko. So if you have any other questions, um, if you have ideas about other people to bring onto the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me. I love hearing from you all. Please feel free to be like, hey, I think this person's research is really cool. Can you bring her on the podcast? I love those ideas. I welcome them. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We really appreciate all of that. And again, thank you to Dr. Alex Timko. I hope you all, wherever you are, maybe listening on a Monday, Friday, Wednesday, whatever day of the week, but I hope you all go forth. Um, you you remember your worth, that it's not tied to your, your body size, your body weight, or anything that social media is trying to convince you of, of course. Um, And with that, I will see you all next time.